This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett, and Sabrina's still out of town, so I'm doing this one without her again. But again, she'll magically show up for the dinosaur of the day, (laughs) so you don't have to listen to me the whole time. And we want to give a big thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to join the growing numbers, you can go to patreon.com slash I Know Dino. This week, we have a bunch of news. We're taking a break from our epic dinosaur road trip to speak with Taya Budhu and Dr. Balor Minjin, and I apologize for my bad Mongolian pronunciation, from the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs, and our dinosaur of the day is Baryonyx. Jumping right into the news, we have yet another dinosaur discovery from Argentina. This time it's a Megaraptorid, and the discovery was published in PLOS One. It was written by Rodolfo A. Coria and Philip J. Curry. Like I said, it's a Megaraptorid, and it looks a fair amount like an Allosaurus, although it's much more derived being from the late Cretaceous at around 90 million years old, give or take a couple million years. (laughs) So Megaraptoridae is characterized by having relatively long snouts and highly pneumatized, essentially hollow bones. Although it was still a juvenile, it would have been around 6.5 meters or 21 feet long when it died, and Curry says the fact that it had pneumatic hips is pretty unexpected for a big theropod, and it was related to Megaraptor, which was originally found only 30 kilometers away, although in a different rock formation. So the new dinosaur is named Murus Raptor, Baurosensis, and Murus is a Latin term for wall, referring to the discovery of the specimen in the wall of a canyon, and Barosensis alludes to Sierra Barosa, the locality where it was collected. As is often the case, Murus raptor was found a while ago, back in the year 2000, and apparently it was a difficult excavation being discovered in what looks like the base of a nearly vertical cliff. It's estimated to have lived about 90 million years ago, Unfortunately, it wasn't that complete of a find, but they did find a partial skull, including a complete brain case, teeth, 12 vertebrae, 11 ribs, and some pieces of the hips, gastralia, hands, and legs. It also appears to have a few puncture wounds from being bit by another theropod, and a lot of its skull bones are asymmetrical, possibly from a serious infection near the brain case. And on top of that, it also had at least a couple of fractured ribs, too. So this Murus raptor, at least, had a pretty rough life, but it does make quite an interesting fossil with all the different pathologies going on. So we have two weeks in a row with with medium-sized theropod carnivores coming out of Argentina. 
to go along with all their huge titanosaurs, it's becoming quite a dinosaur place. Thanks to Chris on Twitter for sharing this next story with us. Paleontologists found the most complete specimen of Heterodontosaurus tuckeye ever discovered back in 2005 in South Africa. And Heterodontosaurus tuckeye is likely an herbivorous dinosaur, and it's from the early Jurassic about 200 million years ago. It was under 2 meters or 6 feet long, and it probably weighed less than 10 kilograms or 22 pounds. Unfortunately, the rock that this specimen is embedded in is much harder and tougher than the fossil, so it couldn't be removed with conventional methods. They also tried to scan it with a conventional CT scan, but there were minerals in the rock that prevented the scans from working properly. So what do you do? They went to the European Synchrotron, and according to the ESRF website, it's the most powerful x-ray source in the world at 100 billion times brighter than x-rays used in hospitals. And it is very similar technology to a CT scan and shouldn't be surprising if you remember that the full name of a CT scan is x-ray computed tomography. So the European synchrotron is really cool and I want to give a few facts about it because I hadn't really heard about it before. I don't know how I missed it. But it was inaugurated in 1994 in Grenoble in the French Alps, and thousands of researchers visited every year. It's essentially a circular electron accelerator that's 844 meters or just over half a mile long. And since it's a circle, the length is the same thing as the circumference. It has 42 labs around the edge of the ring, each of which aligns as like a tangent with the x-ray loop and then it'll split off part of that beam into their equipment so you can study it but they can be doing 42 different experiments all around the loop at the same time and all 42 labs run 24 hours a day six days a week but even that's not enough for all the experiments that people want to run on it so they have to turn down about half of the applicants luckily this team got approved to do their study and they spent five 24-hour days scanning the heterodontosaurus specimen at the synchrotron to get a better picture of what it looked like. They managed to get details of the inner ear, which will help determine the angle it held its head at, and they could see that the skull wasn't completely fused, meaning that it wasn't done growing. But <laughs> they gathered over a terabyte of data, and they expect to spend the next year analyzing it. Longtime listeners may think this sounds vaguely familiar. It turns out that this is the same lab and the same group from South Africa that took some 200 million year old eggs there about a year ago. So I haven't seen any updates on those eggs yet, but hopefully we'll see a paper about them soon. Apparently the ESRF has a whole group at the synchrotron dedicated to paleontology and it's become one of the popular things to study there. Next in the news, when we spoke with Dr. Scott Persons a few weeks ago, he told us his favorite dinosaur was Hannah, and Hannah is just the nickname of the specimen. CBC News just released some more details about the find. So Hannah is nicknamed after Scott's dog, who occasionally accompanies Scott in the field, and he's the one who discovered the specimen, so he got to name it. Last year, Scott stumbled upon the central horn above the beak of a ceratopsian sticking out of a rock. Then they excavated back into the rock to find the rest of the skull and airlifted it out with a helicopter. This year they went back and dug further into the rock, discovering many more of Hannah's bones, 
but they still have more bones left to excavate remaining in the rock, and they plan to go back next year to get those out. In the meantime, they have a lot of detailed lab preparation to do, so there's plenty of work to be done in the off-season. The reason it hasn't been identified as a specific species and is still being known as Hannah is because it has a mixture of Styracosaurus and Centrosaurus frill ornamentation, possibly making it a sort of missing link on the way from Centrosaurus to Styracosaurus in the evolutionary tree. We'll have to wait and see what they find out when they complete their excavation prep work, but I'm excited to see what they come up with. And also, a big congratulations to Scott, who just got married a few days ago as of this recording at a Nerd Night event complete with dinosaur centerpieces. And Sabrina and I love a good dinosaur wedding, so that's awesome. If you're listening to this podcast from France, you can keep your eyes peeled for a stolen dinosaur. They call it a velociraptor, but it's definitely not. It's got a head and arms that look much more like a T-Rex. And then I don't even know what's going on with his feet. They're kind of like halfway in between a T-Rex and a Dromaeosaur. And it's a typical bad <laughs> non-scientific reconstruction of a dinosaur. But it was stolen from the Norway Paris Fish and Game Association, which is in Paris, not surprisingly. Although I say stolen, maybe it was actually rescued because it's actually an archery target. Yeah, apparently there's a company that makes dinosaur archery targets. They also sell a Stegosaurus and a Parasaurolophus. And I don't know why you want to shoot a dinosaur over and over again. But apparently a replacement for this one would cost about $800. Although Amazon has a nice reusable archery target for under $50. So maybe they should just get that and stop shooting dinosaurs. But they were using it to train kids, so I guess maybe they're preparing for some kind of post-apocalyptic dinosaur attack, preparing the future generations, because you have to use bows and arrows too. I don't know. It looks like the International Ocean Discovery Programs, or IODP, has finished drilling into the Chicxulub Peak Ring. We covered when they started their expedition back on April 5th, and according to National Driller, they planned to drill about 1,500 meters down, but they ended up only <laughs> drilling 1,334.69 meters, or 4,378.90 feet. And I'm just taking this advantage to be precise, since usually with the paleontology we're giving estimates and approximate numbers. So the drillers ran two 12-hour shifts to keep running 24 hours a day, and they went through about 500 meters of sediment that was gathered over the 66 million years since the impact before starting to take cores of the layers of rock that they were interested in. And first they found a layer of small ruptured rocks called impact breccia, which got larger as they cored down, then a layer of hard black brittle melt rocks, and finally they got into the granite. They had great success with the cores, so they have a complete continuous sample to work with of the whole stratigraphic section that they're interested in. Since they didn't core in the beginning, they ended up with a total of 303 cores averaging 2.74 meters or 8.98 feet in length for a total of 828.99 meters or 2,719.8 feet of cores. It's a lot of rock. The cores are headed to Germany where they will start studying them in September 
And they expect the first round of research to take about four weeks, which seems pretty quick for that huge number of cores, but maybe it's just a general overview of how deep the layers are. I'm not sure. So hopefully we'll hear about their research sometime in the winter. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Now we're going to go into our interview with Balor and Taya. And Dr. Balor Minjin has a PhD in paleontology and is currently doing research at the American Museum of Natural History. She is a National Geographic Explorer, Wings World Quest Fellow, an advocate of fossil conservation, and founder of the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs. And Taya Butu has worked in advertising for the past 10 years and recently launched the Digital Quarry Project for Dinosaur National Monument. She has also volunteered with the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, founded Creatives for Science, and she is the one behind the online presence of the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs. So now on to the interview. First, we always like to ask, do either of you have a favorite dinosaur? (laughs) I mean... I love all Mongolian dinosaurs, but I, for me, of course, Velociraptor is the most <laughs> interesting one. Cool. Mm-hmm. How about you, Tay? Well, today, my favorite dinosaur is definitely Protoceratops, because this morning, I got a beautiful piece of artwork from our paleo artist, Emily Willoughby, 
and she finally sent us our protoceratops that we're going to be using on some materials and it looks so beautiful so i'm enamored (laughs) that's great just one more thing to add to Taya's favorite dinosaur. <laughs> so Protoceratops is also a very important dinosaur for uh, Mongolian paleontology because it's uh, the first dinosaur that was discovered in Mongolia back in 1920s. And also uh, we chose that dinosaur to be on our logo. So it's, uh, it's a very cute dinosaur. <laughs> if you see the baby ones too. Yeah, yeah, that is a good one. And I like your logo. It's pretty cool. Oh, thank you. So, Balor, your bio lists you as a second generation paleontology. Is that how you first got interested in dinosaurs? Well, um, the thing is, uh, my father, he's one of the first generation mm-hmm. of uh, Mongolian paleontologists. So I was exposed to paleontology because of my father. And I think, I mean, the thing, the point I want to make is uh, it's hard to be, become a paleontologist in Mongolia. The reason I would say is, you know, I think there's not many things that you can be exposed to, to learn about, you know, paleontology there, because not much of books and TV shows, so, uh, not much of public outreach going on. I mean, now it's getting better. But like when I was a kid and kind of going into this field, it was hard for me to find the source of information that I would interest to, you know, get more information about a specific group of like vertebrates, for example. You know, um, there's no books that I would go to look Mm. to read it in my own language. I mean, it's only I was able to you know, find some source of information, like especially books were from my dad's library, you know, at home. And those are all in Russian. So, um, so it's, it's, it's challenging, you know, you need to learn the Russian, then you can read that book, which I was doing that when I was in uh, college. That's dedication. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, it's dedication and also interest and also, you know, having a mentor like my father who uh, was, you know, next to me that if I had anything, you know, I can easily ask questions. And if he wasn't a paleontologist, I'm not sure who and where I should go to ask those questions. But I do know that, you know, most of uh, public and kids, you know, they go to the museum in the city, the capital city of Lambatar. We have a natural history museum. There's a couple of uh, exhibit halls have fossils that's been found from Mongolia. But unfortunately, you know, that's, uh, that is the only source of information um, and then even you live in the city, if you're not living in the center of the city, then the chance of you going to that museum is, you know, less. Yeah. So, I mean, we had actually back 2010, we did outreach project in the city for, you know, paleontology on dinosaurs for kids in the city. Then we basically targeted kids who live, um, outskirts of the city. 
And I asked, there were like 30 kids there. So I asked, like, how many have you been here at the Natural History Museum? So we did the workshop at the museum there in Nolanbatar. Only two kids raised hands. You know, it's out of just small sampling. But that's kind of some way it's a general picture you would get. Yeah. And that's kids that were interested in hearing you talk about dinosaurs, too. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, if the time when I, when I was a kid, if someone's doing this kind of outreach projects to public and kids, that could have been a great opportunity for me that I get exposed to, you know, this knowledge and new discoveries of fossils in Mongolia. Unfortunately, they weren't such things. So, hmm. you know, I think now, like we doing this outreach, you know, more, we, we try to reach as many kids as possible. I think, you know, we feel that, you know, for me especially, I'm very happy that these kids to know about and learn about those fossils and, you know, fossil heritage in Mongolia. So in hoping that, you know, at least a few of them may be interested to go to paleontology or even, you know, some of them, you know, go into science, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we just want to you know, through the paleontology and dinosaurs exposed to science. You know, we want something different in their life that they should get excited about it. I mean, of course, you know, Mongolian culture is a little different from U.S. And so here in the U.S., you know, dinosaurs are like a pop culture mm-hmm. in some sense that, and also very much commercialized, and it's hard to find any products without dinosaurs on it, especially for kids. Yeah. Uh, toys and books and stuff. But then in Mongolia, the country that's been known by its, you know, this uh, exciting and important dinosaur fossils, and of course, other vertebrates been discovered since 1920s. And then the public and kids didn't have much of knowledge about this heritage, you know, I think. So that's why it's very important for us, you know, even the scale of work we are doing is not as that great as can be, but we are contributing some way to make, you know, this project to reach out as far as we can in the country, in the different areas. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is, other than the books, is it just that there haven't been a lot of things in pop culture to get people interested in dinosaurs? or For me, what I've been... Um, experiencing is, you know, as you know, like since 1920s, there were major uh, international expeditions being worked in Mongolia. Mm-hmm. So each time those expeditions, it's a research and expeditions and by different country scientists from different countries. Uh, what happened is, unfortunately, most of those fossils left the country. Mm-hmm. And so what happened when uh, fossils left the country, the knowledge left with it, the means that you know, even the scientists working on those institutions in different countries, you know, whenever the results come out, it came out in different language, right? So it, mm. that knowledge and information and result of that, you know, work never went back to Mongolia and um, any way to have the public to learn about those discoveries. Gotcha. So it's been like almost 90 years then, like our institutions, uh, first outreach was back 2009. So that is the first ever dinosaur outreach has happened in Mongolia for the whole country. 
So then, you know, when we did that outreach project, we specifically focused on uh, kids who live uh, near like uh, Fleming Cliffs, you know, near fossil sites in the Gobi. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, first time the kids been exposed to the knowledge of dinosaur and fossils. And then also is uh, in terms of, you know, these kind of discoveries, we don't have books and kids' books, even for adults. We don't have much of a source of information for them to learn about. Mm. So is, I don't know much at all about Mongolia, but is the Mongolian language very different than, say, Chinese or Russian? Yeah, it's, it's, it's different. The Mongolian language actually uh, grouped with, there is a group called Altaic language group, which includes uh, probably the closest is like Turkish language. Okay. So uh, we do have kind of similar dialect and sounds. Um, it's not close enough that you could like read a Turkish book. No, I mean, in terms of script, it's different. I mean, okay. you know, we use alphabet. I mean, Russian Cyrillic alphabet. You know, that was actually uh, being introduced to Mongolia in the 1920s. Uh, when Mongolia became a satellite country to Soviet Union. But before then, we did have um, own script, which uh, we call Uyghur, which rooted into a old Iranian Sogdian script. Hmm. So it's, it's very different, yeah. Would you like to learn a couple of words in Mongolian? <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> I'm trying to learn some Mongolian before we go. I'll teach you hello. Bolor, tell me if I'm totally messing it up. Okay. Okay. San Banu. That's pretty good. San Banu? San Banu. San Banu? Yeah. San Banu. San Banu means hello. (laughs) Kind of official way. Oh, okay. So that's not what you would say to your friends. That's like what you'd say in a professional kind of situation. Well, I think if you're meeting with someone you don't know, then uh, you say Samanu. With friends, we say Sanu. Okay. So it's kind of like hey versus hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good, Taya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you learned how to say bye? Bye. 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 Uh-huh. That's a tricky sound that I keep hearing. In- it is. My first impression trying to learn Mongolian was that it sounds like the wind. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Like it just sounds like it comes from the steps. Like there's all these very breezy sounds to it and Mm. yeah, catch. (laughs) But I'm getting the hang of it, I think. So how do you pronounce that word that's on a lot of your, I guess, memorabilia on your Indiegogo? Bainzag. Uh-huh, Bainzag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? It means uh, rich saxol. So there's a kind of tree that grows there called a saxol tree? Yeah, and it's kind of, yeah, lovely. Yeah, so mm-hmm. which is actually, I think that's the Russian name for the tree is saxol. Yeah, that is. I mean, so zag is uh, the Mongolian way we would say. If you've ever seen like a pinyon tree in the southwest or like a desert juniper, it looks a little bit like that, I think. That's what I think of when I see the pictures. Hmm. So those kinds of trees are found in the area. So how did that word make it onto all your stuff? Right. The area is a 
fossil quarry that's sometimes called the Flaming Cliffs in the West, but the Mongolian name, of course, is Bayanzag. And it is the first location where dinosaurs were found in Mongolia. And Bolor, do you want to tell the backstory about that? Yeah, probably the most of our paleontologists know that, and also some public, but the expedition that uh, sent from American Museum of Natural History, that expedition was led by uh, Rochep and Anders and back in 1920s, like specific dates were um, 1922, 1923, 1925. So three years they actually had worked in Mongolia and they made the discovery of first Mongolian dinosaurs and also first dinosaur nest in the world. Wow. In Bainzak. So Bainzak is not uh, only important for Mongolia, but also important for the world uh, in terms of discoveries of dinosaur fossils and also the nest of, uh, you know, dinosaur nest being found there. So it's, it's an internationally known place. And so because of that, it attracts a lot of tourists who come to Mongolia and they always stop at Bainzak. Cool. Yeah, so it's, it's very important historically and paleontological discoveries. It's very important fossil site for the country and for the world, for the paleo community too. So it's one of the places we're focusing really strongly on because it's also really at risk. It's been designated as like a state park almost. I think it's provinces there. It's a protected park, but there's not really facilities there, and there's only one ranger in the whole area. So we're putting a lot of effort into trying to help protect the fossils that are there because they become very easily exposed and then very easily damaged by people who drive up and aren't paying attention or walking around or just honestly trying to take them because they can. And so we are trying to do conservation of fossils there that are exposed as well as education among the local community to let people know what to do if they see a fossil and who to report it to if they see someone trying to take one. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a really important thing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On that topic of people taking things they shouldn't, there have been a, <laughs> <laughs> there have been a lot of famous or at least high-profile dinosaur repatriations to Mongolia recently, like one that was all over the news was the Tarbosaurus that Nicolas Cage had briefly. And then I guess he found out it was illegal when it got seized. Do either of you think that most people, at least in the U.S., like Nicolas Cage or other people, don't realize that they're buying something illegal? Or do you think that they just think, well, it's illegal, but it's so cool, so I'm just going to buy it anyway? Well, Nicolas Cage's case is... Uh it's just one of uh, many happening with uh, repatriation that we are doing it since 2013. So the Mongolian dinosaur fossils been auctioned uh, quite known auction houses. You know, there are some number of major auction houses been auctioning Mongolian dinosaurs. I, th I think some way because of you know coming up to these, you know, known places and people probably assume, you know, those fossils are legitimate, mm -hmm. right? But then the thing is that auction houses should be somewhere informed to know what is legal, what is illegal, 
Yeah, I thought that was crazy when I found out that auction houses are basically allowed to sell illegal things and nothing really happens to them. That's so strange. Well, yeah, that's the unfortunate thing that we uh, dealt with. The first dinosaur we repatriated back was 2013. It's a Tarbosaurus batar, nearly complete skeleton of a, a meat-eating dinosaur. Mm-hmm. So that was the most success story that Mongolia, you know, was able to get back the, the first fossil heritage to repatriate it back to the country. So it did make a lot of sensation in the country that brought the same time a lot of awareness, especially among public. You know, so when public see that is, oh, this is a great victory for the country, mm-hmm. that the things we could have lost, right? But at the same time, they see that there's a price tag on this dinosaur, million dollar. So that is the unfortunate part of this thing that if you start to put value on, you know, money kind of value on the fossil, then this is like become just any other product, which is not good. So that's why our outreach is really focusing on give the people to knowledge and to understand the importance of this fossil heritage in Mongolia. And instead of they thinking, hey, million-dollar dinosaur, they would think, is, oh, this fossil heritage is important, you know, not just for Mongolia and for the rest of the world, for knowledge to learn about the Earth history. And at the same time, also the thing that we should be proud of. You know, when we you know, interact with the kids here in the States, they say the Mongolian dinosaur names, and at the same time they put, because of dinosaurs, they can find the Mongolia on the map. So that's important. So dinosaur is actually some way teaching them not just what is it, but also where is it geographically it's found, then learning about the country. Hey, this is Mongolia. So Mongolia, so what kind of country is that, you know? Mm-hmm. So that sense is for Mongolians like me and other Mongolians, we have a culture, a language, and that we want to share with the rest of the world. And we say, if we, if, you know, when I'm here in New York or in, in the U.S., and I would, when I meet some people, I'd say, hi, I'm from Mongolia, you know. So then some people would know Mongolia. Is it part of China? You know, you know, kind of things that we don't like to hear, right? <laughs> say, Mongolia is a country, you know. So we, somewhere we need to, Show, of course, we have a language to speak and culture to show. And also, dinosaur is being also another thing to come in to show to public here, hey, this dinosaur is from Mongolia, a country that is in Asia, you know? Mm-hmm. To answer your question on another level, because Mongolia is a faraway place that a lot of Americans aren't really familiar with and maybe don't know anyone from, especially because... It was until so recently a Soviet country, so there's not a big immigrant presence in America of Mongolian people yet. There's definitely a distance there. And even if you maybe know full well that a fossil came from Mongolia, and even if you maybe know that it was imported illegally, you may not have a sense that there's anything anybody could or would do about it because it seems so far away and distant. And one thing we want to try and do here with our work in digital media, especially, and in the U.S., is just get people to realize that, hey, these are real communities. 
that actually need those fossils for their own benefit. And the people there and the kids there are normal kids and they're people like you and me and they love dinosaurs and they want to learn about them and they have a pride in what comes from their country. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're having some success with that on digital media, I think, so far. This campaign certainly helps. Yeah, I also saw, when was it? I want to say about six months ago, there was... They had a funny word for it, but it was almost like they described it as a celebration in New York where they were giving fossils back to Mongolia. Were you guys involved with that at all? Yeah, this dinosaur fossil repatriation project started since 2013. So I've been involved very closely to this repatriation. So here in, in the U.S., I represent Mongolian governments, especially the Ministry of uh, Science, Culture, and Education, mm. and also President's Office. Some extent, professional opinion I do provide, and also I do logistical help for the government. And so, so far, we have repatriated uh, 30, about 31, 32 dinosaurs. Wow. So, in two weeks, we're actually going to send back to Mongolia eight Mongolian dinosaurs that we actually had a repatriation ceremony in April. In New York City, we worked with the U.S. Attorney Office in Southern District and Homeland Security and Border Protection uh, Agency. So we do have about 10 more dinosaur fossils uh, waiting to be repatriated, but at different stages of some legal cases going on. Hmm. Yeah, so we are very much closely related to this repatriation project in, on every step of it So, for, for the country. That's great. Yeah, so I guess it was called repatriation ceremony. That's what I was thinking <laughs> yes. of. <laughs> I mean, we had a third ceremony in April. So the April ceremony was very different from the previous two. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, the first one is very important and very exciting. And some way it was sensational. But the, the one we had it in April was different the way that U.S. Attorney Office in Southern District really supported that to have outreach um, educational component in it, in it, the ceremony. And so we had American and Mongolian kids actually came to the ceremony to be part of it. And at the same time, they learned about those dinosaurs that were going to be repatriated back to Mongolia. So I, I really was happy how that ceremony went. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's not just we celebrating, but at the same time, you know, bringing awareness. You know, look here, this fossils are so beautiful and has, you know, a lot of information and knowledge that you can get. Yeah, so those eight dinosaurs will be shipped back in two weeks. So I'm working on it as we speak. So. Right. Is that Tarbosaurus that's on display at the Mongolian Natural History Museum, the one you were talking about, the really complete one that got repatriated? No, uh, what happened is when that first dinosaur, the Tarbosaurus batar skeleton was repatriated, so government actually uh, decided to open a new museum. It's called uh, Central Museum of Mongolian Dinosaurs. And so they offered me a position as assistant director and uh, chief paleontologist of that museum. So the Tarbosaurus batar was the first uh, specimen for that museum. So then after that, there's 22 dinosaurs we repatriated, went to the same museum, and these eight dinosaurs would go to the same 
museum. So museum is based in Ulaanbaatar, and it's in a building. Uh, used to be a Lenin's museum, uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. So probably people know who is it. So yeah, uh, there is a natural history museum, but currently it's closed because they have some issue with the building. Oh. So they are going to have a new uh, natural history museum, but I don't know how soon you know all the projects will be completed. So if someone goes to Mongolia, then they can still see those repatriated dinosaur fossils in Central Museum of Mongolian Dinosaurs. I'm not working anymore in that museum, but I do help them out to some extent. And so having this, you know, fossils sending back to uh, Mongolia from states with help of U.S. government, of course. That's great. Mm -hmm. Speaking of opening new things, I guess. You guys, or actually specifically you, Bolar, started the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs, and you have an Indiegogo campaign right now that when this airs will be going for a couple more days. Can you tell us a little bit about the goals of the project and the Institute? Well, the Institute was established in 2007. And the reason, you know, I established that Institute is when I was doing a graduate uh, study at the American Museum of Natural History, you know, I really got to practice and get to know about Western science. Some way, you know, research institutions and how science labs would be like, especially for paleontology. So I dreamed of to have such thing in Mongolia. And I know the situation in Mongolia when I finish, uh, when I graduate and go back to Mongolia, I will have a really hard time to continue uh, my profession is a paleontologist because there's also still were kind of limited sources. So to have the research successfully to be done, I for me just I really wanted to have a institution like M and H, but of course you know that's just <laughs> impossible <laughs> that huge scale. But you know at least could have some way even small model, you know like how research. Institute and like especially paleontology based should be. I really also wanted that thinking of our next generation of paleontologists. If you, when we come through, they will experience the same thing I would experience, you know, then they will be discouraged not to continue their profession. Mm. You know, for me, I had the moment in time that, you know, I was going to quit paleontology. And I think that's really hard decision. But then thinking of the problems and issues that how things are in Mongolia, I really thinking, you know, having a organization it seems to me makes sense, right? So in the same time, getting a public to know about what you're doing as a scientist is really important. That's how you get the support back from the public. Yeah. And such kind of practice wasn't really been in Mongolia. So I really wanted to have some of practices, how things happening here, wanted in Mongolia. So that's why institution established. And at the same time, we were start to have this fossil poaching problem. Oh. So we, you know, really want some fossil conservation. I mean, without fossil, you know, I don't think we can study much of anything, right? <laughs> so we true. have to really focus on that to bring the importance to the public then we would talk about the conservation, you know, how to conserve those fossils, especially in the ground. It's very important because that's where's the whole problem starting, you know, in terms of poaching. 
But then in terms of Mongolia, most of fossil sites are quite isolated places, not you know close to town, right? So uh, it's very challenging some way. And also it really favors for poaching because you, you don't know what's going on out there. So there's a lot of reasons that these things to need to be in Mongolia. Yeah. So basically supporting next generation of Mongolian paleontologists and public outreach and fossil conservation. And so all some sense it comes into one thing, which is uh, some a museum. So that's the thing. When I was at the MNH, I just like first step I went through the door of that institution, I just like, whoa, you know, <laughs> just like museum is like this, you know. Yeah. Something dreaming of, you know, I really want to have a museum like this in Mongolia. You know, I think it's hard to have it that big. But I think we will get there some scale, you know, in terms of museums. Yeah, Balor and I actually, um, one of the inspirations for the museum that we've been planning for Mongolia was Dinosaur National Monument. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. Balor and I met last summer and how we got, how I got involved in this project. So if you haven't been there, Dinosaur National Monument has this just beautiful building surrounding a in situ fossil quarry where the dinosaur bones are still there in the sandstone. Yeah, I love that place. Yeah, it's it's one idea. It it might work a little bit for places in Mongolia, but the way that the light comes into the building and just the way the space feels and how accessible it is is definitely an inspiration for something. Yeah. The only problem is, like you were saying, it's so remote that then the people have to go way out into the middle of nowhere in order to see it. But they come. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, like I said before, that in terms of, you know, dinosaur discoveries and in terms of science part of uh, Mongolian dinosaur fossils, it's pretty well covered, some sense, since 1920s. Even now, there are multiple expeditions working in Mongolia, right? So the water is left out of that was education and knowledge back to the community and kids and public in Mongolia. So that's why the museum that we were talking in Mongolia will be very important. The reason Mongolian fossils live in the country is because we don't have a facility to hold such amount of fossils. And also at the same time, next generation of Mongolian paleontologists. We do need more young people to come to this field, but at the same time, we need to have a support for them. Yeah, you need the fossil prep area and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's very challenging Project, some sense, especially for now. I mean, we do have a museum in the capital city in Mongolia, but then it's important to have such, you know, institution at the site. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that through Dinosaur National Monument. I really wanted to learn to understand, you know, how that fossil site and museum being managed. So we have a rich source of fossils in Mongolia. Why are we not, you know, taking this advantage? Mm-hmm. Better for the public and, you know, for kids. So I think someone has to do it. So we, we, you know, really stepping in to make it this project to happen. So these summers, this Indiegogo 
uh, project is very important. Even though uh, last summer we did successfully launch our first mobile dinosaur museum project right at the Fleming Cliffs site, but this year we want to go across the country to reach more kids and more public as much as possible. And at the same time, the most important project that we're launching this summer is a community conservation project focusing on the fossil sites. Hmm. I want to describe that movable museum a little bit since we haven't talked about it, actually. I haven't seen it in person, so Bullard definitely correct me if I miss anything, but there's some photos of it on our campaign page. It's literally a big tour bus, essentially, that had been converted by the American Museum of Natural History into a museum. It makes a stop wherever it goes. And on the inside, there's a bunch of exhibits about dinosaurs. And it's painted on the outside with like a big dinosaur. And all the exhibits inside are actually in English still because we had it transported from New York. It wasn't last year. It was two years ago, wasn't it, Belor? Yeah. And one of the things that we want to fund with our current campaign is getting all of the exhibits translated into Mongolian for the kids. It looks pretty, I can't wait to see it in person myself. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that this thing exists. It's really cool. Yeah. So what, what kind of stuff is inside it? What kind of exhibits do you have? Yeah. Well, MNH has temporary exhibits on the Mongolian and Chinese fossils being displayed. That's back in some years back. So they created this mobile dinosaur museum that was reaching out in different parts of New York City. So inside exhibit has interactive like screens, touch screen. So kids, uh, kids will do different activities to learn about different discoveries of dinosaurs and also uh, features. And there are some parts also introduces about paleontologists who study specific topics in, on dinosaurs like Karen Chin, who works on coprolites, you know. That's the exhibit get a lot of reaction. Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of reaction last summer from kids because when I said, hey, that is actually dinosaur droppings, and then they closed the nose. You know? <laughs> like, so I said, well, that, it can't smell. Well, you can try to smell. You know, it doesn't, it's fossilized. It's fine. You can touch it. It's like, yuck, you know, it's so funny. That thing <laughs> sterilizes like 65 million years. In the <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. And then it talks about dinosaur extinction and uh, most recent discoveries that coming out from China on uh, feathered dinosaurs. So the exhibit has three parts. And also it has three different age group activities for kids from like kindergarten up to eighth grade. Awesome. Yeah. And, and the thing also, the feature in that vehicle has is they have a lift for someone who's on a wheelchair can be lifted up and can go in the exhibit they can you know go around and see it that sounds really cool it's pretty cool and i i would think that is probably the you know first bus that in mongolia has such a lift for person on a wheelchair can come into the bus yeah it does have also video introduction video when you come in and there's a T-Rex foot bone, and a lot of kids, they want to have a picture next to it. <laughs> so, I want to have my picture next to it, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the challenging thing about that vehicle is it's a recreational vehicle, 37 foot long, 
And, you know, usually the vehicle used here is for camping, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not the vehicle designed to ride on the off-road. But that summer, we really wanted to have that museum go to a nomads and kids who live close to the Fleming Cliffs. Mm -hmm. So we actually drove it off-road for over 200 kilometers. And how'd it do? <laughs> it did well. I mean, surprisingly. And the good thing is, you know, I I know the route and I know the road because I drove many times before when I was on expeditions. So it doesn't have like really kind of bad, bumpy or, you know, roads. It was kind of most of the parts were kind of smooth, but only part was challenging. The road was very like shaky. So because of that, you know, because we drove so much and then the vehicle mirror almost <laughs> fell off <laughs> because all this vibration, all those nails and stuff start to loosen up. So that was a little challenges. But I think we're not going to have that vehicle go off-road again. Mm-hmm. Seems a lot of pressure on the vehicle. But yeah. it actually, it's really well built. You know, <laughs> I almost want to say to, you know, Winnebago, and I think the engine is a Ford. Oh, gosh, this vehicle is good. That it go off-road. I have done it in uh, Mongolia, <laughs> in the Gobi Desert. We didn't stuck in the sand or anything. So it was very exciting. But this fall, we will go on paved road that can, you know, reach as far as can be to the west. I mean, not, you know, paved roads, not everywhere in Mongolia. You mm. know, it's not easily you can go you know, any place if you want to go. It's only certain major towns been connected by paved road. It's not yet for smaller towns to go. So if you want to go to smaller towns, you have to be off-road. Hmm. So that's the challenging part of it. So maybe you should get Winnebago to, like, do an ad campaign with you guys and sponsor your super durable <laughs> mobile dinosaur exhibit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just wondering if they had anyone have tried to have that big of recreational vehicle to drive off-road for over 200 kilometers. <laughs> I think it's pretty well. For science. And, <laughs> and yeah, and also it has an AC and heating system. So it's hot in the Gobi. So it was very useful to have such <laughs> a luxury somewhere in the Gobi that, you know, you go into the exhibit, it's nice cool air and, you know, to walk around and so I think it's really like that yeah. yeah is there anything else people should know about Mongolia or your project so many things where do I even start we've got <laughs> a lot of information on our campaign page it's igg.me slash at slash Mongolian dinos and we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Mongolian dinos and of course I'm sure you'll be posting all those links as yep. well along with the podcast but there's a lot of information we have, and we're just collecting so much more. There's so much. I'm doing the website, and boy, there's so much we haven't added to it yet. I want to tell you about all the dinosaurs that are in Mongolia. We're going to have articles about each one with all the information we can find and illustrations. And, of course, the history of paleontology in Mongolia is just amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like in America as well, we have about 100 years that we go back, but starting with the 1920s and Roy Chapman Andrews and then going into the whole Soviet expeditions and this whole era where science was 
completely cut off from the West and then coming back into the nineties and bringing Western scientists back and what had changed. And it's just an incredible story. And we're actually trying to sum up the three main chapters of that with a little bit of a special perk that we put together that we thought people might like, and it's been a little bit popular. So it's called the Bianzag Library. And it's a collection of three books that cover the different chapters of paleontology out at that fossil quarry Bianzag that we talked about earlier. Awesome. Yeah. And also, she's working on a website, Bianzag website. That's right. Uh, Bianzag.org. How do you spell it in (laughs) non-Cyrillic? B-A-Y-A-N-Z-A-G. Okay. And we're also using the alternate name, The Flaming Cliffs, which was the name that Roy Chapman Andrews gave it. Is that just because it's so hot? Why is it called The Flaming Cliffs? (laughs) Well, actually, you'll see from the pictures, it's a really beautiful location with these sort of reddish mesas Mm. that catch the light at sunset and turn a very flame kind of color. There's a beautiful photo that Balor took last year of these cliffs all lit up in gold with the rainbow. (laughs) It's just over the top. Wow. (laughs) Oh, yeah. In person, yeah. Flamingcliffs.org is the other URL. They go to the same place. Great. I definitely recommend that everyone go and support Save Mongolia's Dinosaurs on Indiegogo because they'll definitely put the money to good use and they have some really awesome perks like replica dinosaur claws, shirts, and mugs with dinosaur prints, posters, and if you have really deep pockets, you could even join them on their trip. So it's definitely worth checking out. Even if you don't care about their project, which you definitely should, Their stuff is actually very cheap. It's weird how cheap your perks are. Like a shirt on there is the same price pretty much as a regular shirt. And they're cool. So definitely go support them and get cool dinosaur stuff at the same time. And could you share the website for that one more time? It's igg.me slash at slash Mongolian dinosaurs. Yeah. And I can never remember that. So I go to Google and I type yeah. <laughs> Indiegogo of Mongolia's dinosaurs and then it pops up. <laughs> there we go. There's a couple of things to add to the project that we will be doing in the fall. We will be live. We will try. It will be out in the Gobi, but we definitely can do it live in the city because we will do some workshops and activities in the city. Mm-hmm. So... If anyone interested, we will be updating our Indiegogo campaign and also the Facebook page of our institute. Uh, we will have the dates and time when we will be alive in Mongolia. And also we are planning to have a Skype meeting of American and Mongolian kids to have a conversation about dinosaurs and Mongolian culture, American culture. So we have, it's not just Doing these activities in Mongolia, we do want to, uh, you know, create some bridge between the two countries that can be in in the other countries as well, maybe in the future, that we really want the Mongolian kids should also see the kids in other worlds also really excited to learn about Mongolian dinosaurs. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely be following along. So in terms of also uh, Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs, you know, when I was establishing back 2007, that Jack Horner, the paleontologist, probably some people know, 
Yeah, we've talked to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so Jack Horner was, I mean, he's still very supportive of our project in Mongolia. So we had actually multiple expeditions together, and he helped our institute to support a couple of Mongolian students. So that was very important for Mongolia. And so he, I really, I can't say enough to thank him, you know, how much he helped us to stand our feet for our institute. He still, you know, supports us, of course. He's still very closely, we have contacts and we talk about our projects and, you know, he has some suggestions and he helped us a lot. And also this fall, we have Mark Norell from American Museum of Natural History. He will join us briefly in one of our workshops in the city. And so our institute actually hosting him in Mongolia to have a future talk for public about Mongolian dinosaur discoveries and the research he's been doing in Mongolia. And also he will come to uh, Dinosaur Mobile Museum to interact with kids and if kids have any you know, specific questions I uh, want to know, because he has done, you know, some number of uh, research on Mongolian dinosaurs. I'd be very excited to have him on board as well. And also, you know, we really thank American Museum of Natural History donating a mobile dinosaur uh, museum for our institute that really, really make that to go as far as we can to have our projects to be successful, you know, it's summer to reach out more kids. Awesome. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Garrett. No problem. Thanks for joining. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, have a nice time in Mongolia, guys. Thank you. Oh, thank you. We we will. <laughs> We're really excited. Again, I really want to thank Taya and Balor for coming on and talking about dinosaurs with us. It sounds like a really awesome trip that they're going on around Mongolia to teach all these kids about dinosaurs and really try to inspire the next generation of paleontologists in Mongolia because we know it's so important that people local to the area appreciate the fossils so that they're treated properly and respected and ultimately excavated more frequently like we're seeing in Argentina now so we get to find out more about the dinosaurs that come from that area. And now for our Dinosaur of the Day, Baryonyx, which was a request from Cole via Patreon and Garrett via Facebook. So thanks again, guys. The name means heavy claw, and it has a large claw on its first finger. It was a theropod that lived in the Cretaceous, and the type species is Baryonyx walkeri. The species name is in honor of the fossil hunter William J. Walker, who discovered Baryonyx. And the holotype was found in 1983 in Surrey, England, and it was named in 1986. William Walker was also a plumber, and he hunted fossils in his free time. It's kind of like Super Mario. <laughs> if Bowser was a dinosaur. Yeah. He's hunting dinosaurs in his spare time as a plumber. That's true. wonder if he has a brother. <laughs> so, Walker found a large claw, full-length bone, and part of a rib in a clay pit in Surrey, England, and then found the tip of the claw a week later. Alan Charig and Angela Milner described Baryonyx in 1986, and then paleontologists found more bones. So the holotype ended up consisting of partial skull bones, teeth, vertebrae, ribs, sternum, arm and hand bones, hip and leg bones, and claws. And other fragments of Baryonyx have been found in other parts of the UK and Iberia. This includes Baryonyx teeth, as well as some hand bones and a vertebra. 
1999, bones, a tooth, a phalanx, metacarpals, and vertebrae remains were found in Spain of an immature baryonyx, and dinosaur tracks nearby may have belonged to baryonyx too. Jaw fragments and teeth found in Portugal that were thought to be crocodilian were redescribed and referred to baryonyx. In 2007, there was a paper called The Spinosaurid Dinosaur Baryonyx, Sauricea Therapata, in the early Cretaceous of Portugal, published in Geological Magazine. Makes sense that you could mistake it for a crocodile since they have such similar kind of behavior, most likely, going yeah. for fish and all that kind of stuff. That's true. Do you find that more believable than an iguanodon tooth being like an iguana's? Yes, <laughs> definitely. So more material was found in Portugal later, partial dentary, isolated teeth, vertebrae, rib fragments, and more. And in 2011, another specimen in Portugal was attributed to baryonyx, and it was published in a paper called A New Specimen of the Theropod Dinosaur Baryonyx from the Early Cretaceous of Portugal and Taxonomic Validity of Sucosaurus. And it was referred to baryonyx because the teeth were so similar. Baryonyx was the first early Cretaceous theropod found in the world, so it was in the media a lot. And it's the last significant theropod found in the... Oh. The last significant theropod found in the UK was in 1871. Eustreptospondylus. That's a long time. It's mm -hmm. over 100 years. That is. I guess that's why I made such a big splash. Yeah. And this baryonyx was in a 1987 BBC documentary nicknamed Claws, as a pun to the film Jaws. Hmm. Baryonyx was the first theropod found that showed that theropods ate fish. The holotype had fish scales in its stomach region. Before baryonyx, scientists thought that theropods and other carnivorous dinosaurs had boxy round skulls instead of narrow skulls. And baryonyx was key to identifying the spinosaur group. Before, their teeth were thought to be crocodiles, and the original Spinosaurus fossils were destroyed in World War II, so that didn't help. The holotype of Baryonyx is also one of the most complete theropods from the UK, but the holotype may not have been a full-grown adult. When Baryonyx was first found, it was unclear if the large claw that it had was on its hand or its foot, like a dromaeosaur, and this was eventually described in more detail in 1997. Baryonyx was about 25 feet or 7.5 meters long and weighed 1.2 tons. Its first finger claw was about 12 inches or 31 centimeters long. A fully grown baryonyx may have been much larger, and this is based on its relative Spinosaurus, which was about 46 feet or 14 meters long and weighed 10 tons. Baryonyx's neck was curved, but not quite as curved as other theropods. It had strong forelimbs, and it lived near water. It probably could swim, though it probably was not aquatic. The nostrils were at the side of its snout. So it had this triangular crest on top of the nasal bones, and again, an elongated skull, a long, low snout, and narrow jaws. And its maxilla and premaxilla are similar to Dilophosaurus. A CT scan of snouts in 2007 found that baryonyx was most similar to gharials, which also means they were likely to eat fish. Yeah, and those are those super weird crocodilians that I think are in India. I think they might even be a little bit in danger now, but they have this really long, skinny snout. Compared to crocodiles, even, it's, like, super narrow. Yeah. And then they have kind of, like, this big bump on the end, like a big knob. It looks kind of goofy. <laughs> kind of like baryonyx. Yep. A 2013 test found that baryonyx snout could take more stress bending and twisting than gharials. So baryonyx did not have a sail, but scientists saw a lot of similarities between baryonyx and spinosaurus. Baryonyx had a notch at the end of its jaw, similar to crocodiles which they probably used to help grip slippery prey, such as fish. Baryonyx may have been a predator and a scavenger, 
The holotype also had bones of a juvenile iguanodon in it, so maybe it caught prey with its large forelimbs and claws. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time in areas baryonyx included iguanodon, mantillosaurus, and small sauropods. In 1987, Andrew Kitchener suggested baryonyx was a scavenger and that it used its claws to rip open prey and its long snout to dig into its food. But its jaws and teeth may have actually been too weak to catch fish or kill prey easily. Yeah, and digging around with those little spear-like teeth isn't really going to work so well either. Yeah, but in 1997, Cherig and Milner found evidence that baryonyx did eat fish. They saw acid-etched scales and teeth of fish in the stomach region, as well as there was a juvenile guanodon bones and a gastrolith. Kind of interesting that it had a gastrolith. So maybe baryonyx caught fish like a crocodile by gripping with a notch in the snout and then tilting their head backwards and swallowing the fish head first. And then it could have used its claws to break up bigger fish, kind of like a grizzly bear. Its long teeth were good for holding prey, not so much crunching. They were serrated and conical and small and pointed. Baryonyx had more teeth in the lower jaw than upper jaw. There were 64 in the lower jaw, 32 in the dentary, and 7 in the right premaxilla. It had more teeth than most theropods, almost twice as many teeth as T-Rex. And baryonyx teeth are similar to Sucosaurus, and some scientists think that they might be the same animal. Other scientists think they're just closely related, but since Sucosaurus is based only on teeth and jaw fragments, there's just not enough information to know for sure. So maybe Sucosaurus is a synonym. It was named in 1841, but its teeth are slightly different from baryonyx. Baryonyx teeth also vary between individuals, so it's a bit confusing. Yeah, that sounds like a lumper more so than a <laughs> more than a splitter mentality. Yeah. Just saying like all baryonyx, they just have different teeth from one to the other, but it makes me think maybe they're actually different species. Could be. So because of a lack of diagnostic apomorphies, both Sucosaurus species, Sucosaurus cultridens and Sucosaurus gerardi are nomina dubia. If you like, though, you can see a baryonyx skeleton at the Natural History Museum in London. And so again, baryonyx is part of Spinosauridae, and Spinosauridae is a group of theropods with similar teeth and snouts to crocodiles. They have unique teeth for theropods in that they're finely serrated and they have long tooth roots, and they're large predators with long crocodile-like skulls. Many had sails on their backs, which may have been used for thermal regulation, display, or to store energy. They could have also used their sails as like a shade over a lake to cut out reflections oh, so yeah. that they could fish. I like that idea too. Yeah, could be. And spinosaurids have been found in Africa, Europe, South America, Asia, and Australia. And our fun fact of the day is that Megaraptor was named a raptor largely because of a big dromaeosaur-like claw that was found with the holotype, so it was assumed to be a large toe claw like the one on a velociraptor. But later, a more complete specimen was found where the claw turned out to be attached to the hand. So now its family is much less certain. The leading groups seem to be that megaraptorids are either tyrannosauroids or spinosauroids or maybe allosauroids. But it's still being debated and we'll just have to hope to find a better specimen that kind of nails it down better. Unfortunately... That Murus raptor from earlier in the episode didn't seem to help with nailing down the phylogeny. So we're just going to have to hope that they find more dinosaurs. And I'm sure they will. <laughs> and that does it for this episode. 
Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash I know Dino and you can sign up for different reward tiers and you can get these episodes ad free if you go to the $10 level or you can get a shout out at the $5 level or other cool gifts. And when we make it to $200 a month, we're going to send all of our patrons a sticker. So if you want to get in on that free sticker action, go to patreon.com slash I know Dino. Until next time. Good day.